Hey, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl for Valentine's Day 2018. And I have a very special guest for you today with our chat with Lama Rod Owens. Lama Rod, just wave and say hi. <laughs> So great to um, connect with him. He's a formally trained Buddhist teacher, uh, identifies as a black queer male, born and raised in the South, heavily influenced by church and community, and also the author of this book, which I read last year, I believe, um, Radical Dharma, co-authored with um, a couple of really amazing people, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and Jasmine Siadula, who uh, they often, you guys teach together, I know, a lot. So I highly recommend um, this book, and we're going to talk about it and a bunch of uh, good stuff today. So Lama Rod, thanks so much for being here on Wise Girl. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, um, it's really my pleasure. I wanted to start by where we are, which is... <laughs> often a place that sometimes people are so much in their head we forget about talking about where we really are and where our bodies really are and uh, maybe just coming into presence with the fact that it's Valentine's Day which um, although it may be a constructed holiday if you will in many respects uh, may also be an opportunity to discuss love and what love really means and um, perhaps I would invite you to talk about the difference between what we think of as love and what I've kind of come to understand uh, as unconditional love versus attachment. Yeah. yeah, you know, and for me, it's the difference between conditional loving and unconditional loving, mm -hmm. you know, and when I was growing up, like I, you know, never had a clear definition of love. Um, I was so influenced by the culture around me. I was influenced by art. Most, um, um, most strongly, I was influenced by um, music, you know, love songs, R&B songs, which, you know, that understanding of love for me was more like suffering, you know. And, and so, but that's what I knew about love. And so coming um, into meditation practice, coming to Buddhism, one of the first things I got was a very clear definition of love, which was the wish for others to be happy, but it's also the wish for ourselves to be happy. You know, and that was so liberating for me. For the first time in my life, it was just so clear, you know, and that love was different than liking. And I always thought that love and like were the same thing, but like is so, is so conditional, you know, it's so subjective. You know, and one of the first direct teachings my root lama gave to me, Lama Nola Rinpoche offered me, was, you know, one day we were just sitting down and he was like, listen, I don't like everyone, <laughs> you know? And this was like this realized meditation teacher, this realized master. Um, but he was like, I love everyone, you know? And that's what our work is, is to love everyone, to want people to be happy, not to like anyone. You know, he was like, if I love you and if I like you, I keep you around. If I don't like you, then I don't hang around you, nor do you hang around me, you know? And that's just, that cleared it up for me completely, you know? And then I was able to go back to look at, you know, look through my life and say, okay, what are the, the experiences of being unconditionally loved, you know? And I began to reflect on those experiences. Then I was like, okay, what were the, you know, uh, situations where I was receiving conditional loving, you know, and that's where a lot of the pain was for me. It's a lot of the woundedness for me. I think that's the case for so many of us that, you know, we associate love with having to perform in certain ways to receive that love, you know, and often it's about fulfilling other people's needs, making other people comfortable, you know, and that's the only way we understand love is by, um, fulfilling other people's needs and expectations of us, you know? So when I started really switching over to like this, like wish for people to be happy, this wish for myself to be happy. And that kind of like completely began to disrupt a lot of my relationships. And that was the, the beginning of radical love, you know, and that was, and this is something I'm still working with. I'm like, I'm not an expert, you know, I know how to talk about love, but every single day I'm struggling to understand um, how to be happy and how to work for the happiness of others. And working for the happiness of 
yourself is a way to work toward the happiness of others, wouldn't you say? And wouldn't you say that part of um, meditation in general, insight meditation, Buddhist meditation, it, by turning the lens inside and inward, we're taking time to become intimate with ourselves in a way that opens us up to being intimate and vulnerable with others? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and one of the things that I often have to clarify is my understanding of happiness. So when I say happiness, I'm not necessarily talking about this euphoric kind of emotional state. But when I talk about happiness, I'm talking about this deeper, deeper kind of happiness that's about contentment. Mm -hmm. You know, that's about connection, that's about vulnerability and openness. And that, that kind of happiness um, can always be present despite what we're experiencing, despite the pain, despite the suffering. So we can experience happiness as we move through really difficult situations, really difficult uh, mental experiences. You know, but yes, you know, first and foremost, like we have to have an understanding of happiness for ourselves. We have to do the work for ourselves. You can't, you can't go out and do the work for other people if you've not done that work for yourself because you don't know what that is for other people. Do you know what is for you? Well, that's what gets to my next point, which is in our culture, especially, we are pretty much raised to believe that you have to think that there's something wrong with you because otherwise there would be no one to market to who would buy all this crap in magazines and on TV ads and all this kind of stuff. And so finding and nitpicking away at who or what you are and just seeing the deficit and the lack as opposed to the wholeness and the goodness seems to be part and parcel with um, this Western culture that we're living in. And instead of disidentifying with it and just saying, oh, that's just marketing, we kind of soak it in because there's also usually some of that stuff, as you said earlier, in our personal, more, you know, family or, or you know, community-oriented experiences as well, where we have to perform for others to make uh, other people happy and try to to save them, which is actually a beautiful quality that children just shouldn't necessarily have to be tasked with, right? right? Mm -hmm. So how do you then do that? And how is that complicated with issues in terms of, um, I guess, supremacy and, um, and, and, you know, subjugation and all of the things that come along, especially with issues pertaining to race and gender in Western culture, for starters, because we don't have to take on the whole world, although it exists in many permutations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we have to realize is that systems are always giving us something to live up to. You know, the, I, I call it the ideal. Like we have this ideal that's thrown at us and we say, and we're told that if we don't meet that ideal, then we're actually, you know, there's something wrong with us. You know, within the capitalist, capitalist model, then like that, that kind of striving for the ideal is how we keep producing and also keep consuming, you know? So that ideal is like the carrot being held out in front of you. You know, you can never quite get it, but as you strive forward, you're like consuming and you're like producing, you know, um, efforts and you're producing like all these other things that you think you need in order to get that carrot, you know? And what we have to do particularly with practices of self-love, is to actually come back to the self, practice kindness for ourselves and patience for ourselves. And that begins to help us to understand that we actually have everything that we need inherently in our experience. You know, and then that begins to disrupt our like, uh, um, you know, kind of buying into these systems and these productions. So that's part of the radical part of radical Dharma. Some people, I think, you know, look at that and they just can't get over the fact that they're not, that they are worthy, right? Whatever that worthiness word means. And, and there's that whole idea of clinging to suffering, clinging to an identity, clinging to that this is the way that it is. I have to be this way because it's the way it's always been. But you keep using the word disruption, and it is precisely that. We're sort of upending that narrative when you look at it with um, a more Buddhist lens or a mindful lens or an insight lens to say, well, in fact, um, you can change the narrative. Um, but the striving part, 
seems to be the part that is perhaps most uh, seductive, which is um, the part that, uh, as I understand it anyway, is the root of sort of that clinging and grasping. So can you, which, you know, is the root of really what causes a lot of suffering and, and pain for so many people. So can you talk about how one makes the shift away from that striving and that hardened belief that, well, if I'm not striving, then I can't just be being, it would be so wrong to just be in love with myself, even though that might feel good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, no, it's about disrupting this kind of capitalist mindset that says, like, I have to be doing something to be valid. You know, to be, to be, be in the world, I have to do something. To take up space, I have to justify my existence. And I think particularly um, for marginalized groups, and I'll just speak for as my existence, you know, from my experience as being, you know, Black identified, it's like so much of my life was me being conditioned to prove and to justify that I should be in the world and I should take up space, you know? Um, and that, you know, being also a descendant of slaves, you know, one of the things that I've been really trying to, to, to work with and contemplate is that, you know, I am not fulfilling the original purpose that my ancestors, you know, were fulfilling and which is why they were brought into this context was to fulfill a purpose and I'm not doing that now and so I have to actually reimagine a different way of being in the world and exemplify that for those around me you know so I, I started doing the early roots of that as I was transitioning into to my meditation practice you know but you have to you have to go through this process just like I did where you start disconnecting from all of these messages all of these voices you know, you start walking away from certain relationships, you start isolating yourself because you have to start listening to your own basic experience. You do that through retreat, you do that through silence, you do that through self-reflection. You begin to listen to who and what you are, then you begin to trust that. You begin to have an experience of that. And then it's that experience that you begin to, to move with into the world and you say, okay, these are the voices, these are the forces, these are the influences. I see that. And now I can turn back to my basic experience to have, to see um, and to know what I'm really all about. You know, and that's what I privilege is my own basic needs, appetite and simple being you know, in the world. And then I put that into dialogue with everything else around me. And, and that's so rich because I think that from that place, um, then that dialogue comes from a place of, of centeredness and a place of um, mutual respect and open-mindedness, which uh, when you're fighting with yourself internally, it's hard to kind of come from that place. It's easier to be pulled off your rocker, you know, um, which kind of leads me to my next um, line of questioning, which is around the idea of the fact that I told you that um, I'm sort of multi-ethnic, I'm Haitian and Dominican on one side, and I'm Italian-American on the other in terms of identity, right? Of course, we can just say there's no self and all of these other things. But, um, and I've had the privilege of sitting with um, POC groups, with people of color groups, and I've had the privilege of also um, being with implicit bias class um, groups, people who uh, are self-identified as white and who are trying to uh, extend the conversation into what it is that they're missing when it comes to understanding people of color or people who have uh, a different uh, skin, you know, or racial or ethnic background than they do. So it's been an interesting space to kind of sit with both, um, and both are sort of a part of me. So I, I, you know, have understood and learned different things from different from different folks. One of the things that has come up a lot in the implicit bias classes with white folks that I've been um, around is, it touches a little on what you've talked about earlier, which is sort of a shame spiral or what in some ways has been talked about as um, white fragility or has been talked a little bit about, oh, it's all on me or I didn't do that or the overwhelm and then the shutdown and then the kind of push away as opposed to that beautiful dialogue that you're inviting people to start to get into once they kind of can get to a place of self stabilization, if you will, internally. Um, and you started the conversation by talking about liberation of suffering for all, not just for one. So can you talk about what it is that 
you might like to see from folks who are white identified who want to sort of engage in this conversation that maybe, you know, isn't what we talk about all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we're working with white folks, you know, one of the things that we, you know, at least from my experience, one of the things that I've had to um, kind of understand is that like, you know, a lot of white folks don't actually know how to struggle in the ways um, a lot of people of color have had to struggle in terms of understanding racialization and also understanding the trauma associated with racialization. You know, these, this language may not be something that we use in our communities, you know, but we know the experiences of trauma and racialization, you know. So white folks actually don't have that experience. Like they have the experience of racialization, they have the experience of trauma, but they don't see that, you know, because that's how power, privilege, and superiority and dominance actually disrupts that, you know, it disrupts connecting to that. Um, and so this whole idea of white fragility, I actually don't believe in, you know, but what I actually do believe in is how, you know, a lot, a lot of white folks don't know how to put in the kinds of effort that many pe people of color have had to put in in order to survive. Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I, I want to encourage white identified folks to, um, to develop a kind of diligence and effort in doing this work, you know, and that when we hit, when you hit like difficult stuff, difficult material, difficult emotional states, then that's when you actually continue to work harder, you push through that. And that's when you use your Dharma practice. If you have a Dharma practice, or a meditation practice, you hold that space. And you begin to experience what the guilt feels like, what the sadness feels like, what the disappointment feels like, what, what the confusion feels like. You know, just holding the space and moving into that, you know, and not expecting someone to come along and save you. Mm. You know, not expecting me to come along and say it's all right, because I won't, you know. And I think that's so fascinating because it is um, part of what I've experienced as well as folks have said, you know, um, what, and I know this is crazy to think about, but like sort of what do I have to gain by doing this work or to, you know, like what's, they're looking for what's in it for me. And, um, and also like, oh, it is uncomfortable. Right. And so therefore, um, you know, I can just sort of, give it more of a face value uh, kind of a attention around the fact that, well, I say I'm not racist or I'm colorblind or whatever, but in fact, it really hasn't been a huge deep interrogation, which is, I know what Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams keeps asking for, for one is to interrogate um, that which um, you're assuming is, you know, whatever your, your, your status quo. And I've heard a lot of people say um, that, oh, they sound angry. Right, and I know you've heard this, and um, or and I when I say they, I don't mean just you and she and your co-authors. I just mean folks who bring up this issue and talk about this issue. Yeah. So can you speak to that and kind of unpack that for a second as yeah. to why that's not really where you're coming from? Yeah, yeah, you know there there is anger in my experience, but that's not where I'm coming from. If I were coming from a place of anger, you would know that. Like you wouldn't feel safer around me. You know, but we come from a place of love, wanting people to be happy, wanting people to be free um, from their suffering. Um, however, we have developed really sophisticated um, strategies to avoid being pointed in the direction of doing this work. You know, so tone policing, you know, that kind of like, oh, you know, I don't like your tone, so I can't listen to you or I feel like you're angry, so I can't listen to you. Those are just strategies to avoid doing the work. And as someone whom those strategies have been like used against, I know what they are and it doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm. Like you can label me angry all you want, but that's not my experience that I'm having in this moment with you, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so you have to have a kind of fortitude. Again, you know, it's having an experience of who and what you are, having a basic trust, and that and that's what actually helps me to hold my ground when I'm doing this work you know and a lot of folks say that you know the whole point of 
meditation practice of looking internally is to actually see the non-separation, to not only feel the non-separation within ourselves, within our own consciousness, mind, body, spirit, you know, whatever framework you want to use to call it is less relevant than that integrated, um, you know, sense of, of wholeness with that extending into and onto other people, regardless of race and gender and the planet, etc. And so when um, people are identified with the ego, whatever it is, the personality, the construct, whether it's negative or positive, um, where does one then begin to chip away and say, here's the benefit. Here's the benefit of what life is like when you see everybody, you know, linked and not ranked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to have you have to have an experience of who you are beyond identity in order to have that kind of, we, I would call it like pure perception or one taste, you know, and we can't perform that, you know. So when people come to me and they're like, you know, I'm colorblind, blah, 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 I don't see color, you know, it's like if that was actually the case, you wouldn't actually have to say that to anyone. You know, I, I really, I really feel that like you can sense when someone's seeing you, not your race, not your gender, not whatever, you know, like you can see, and I've had those experiences where people pierce into like my very being and nothing, this doesn't matter. They're not responding to that. You know, they're seeing me for who I am and they're, they're, they're interacting with that piece. Yeah. And those have been moments of like immense liberation, like just like intense, like, wow, like just a, a parting of like the ambiguity. And it's been an incredible teaching that's really deep in my practice. Um, but we have to work for that. You mm -hmm. know, you have to work for that. And you have to, you just can't go around and just say, you know, I get it. We're all the same. You have to do the work to earn that. You know, and it's a lot of like, there's a lot of, um, of this lack of earning experience. Like we parrot experience, we, we perform experiences, but we're not doing the work to deeply earn these experiences. And that's what meditation is helping us to do. We're earning these experiences, you know, instead of just calling myself a good person, I want to earn my goodness, you know, through seeing who and what I am and then developing virtue from that clear seeing of who and what I am, and then bringing that virtue into every interaction that I have with people. Yeah. Well, and it does seem that in order to do that, one has to be willing to sort of recognize that at a fundamental level, there's a basic goodness, and that there's the, you know, discipline, quite frankly, required and the sort of um, wherewithal to investigate, which isn't always just a day at the beach. Um, at the same time, if one's willing to kind of say, wow, like look at what else is here and be curious about it, as opposed to just be overwhelmed by it, I think that that's a real um, eye-opening position for a lot of folks. Um, shifting gears a little bit also to talk about sort of the, the new wave of Me Too and Time's Up and talking a little bit about how this uh, plays out when it comes to very related material um, around um, patriarchy and you know toxic masculinity and all of these issues that have come up. What's your take on this whole thing right now and and uh, some of the folks that we have in office and uh, some of the stuff that people are doing to try and um, become more harmonious? Yeah, you know, I'll start with the last piece, this idea that, like, we're trying to become harmonious, but we don't understand that, like, we have to really get super disruptive in order to understand what harmony is, you know? Um, so it's just, when, it, when, I, when I look at Me Too, when I look at Time's Up, um, it's everything's, all oppressions are interconnected. Like, everything is like, there's a, a line of power and privilege and dominance that links all of the oppressions that we're talking about. And for our particular country, our society, American culture, we don't actually know how to do the work of reconciling. You know, we don't actually know how to examine our history and to do the work of taking responsibility for the violence um, that 
our ancestors, you know, have curated, you know? So that's connected to Time's Up and, and, and me too, because I think we have to dig a lot deeper than creating like these workplaces and creating relationships and, and educating us about consent and, you know, um, and boundaries. We have to do the work of interrogating and deconstructing a country that actually survives and perpetuates itself on this kind of violence against mm -hmm. marginalized bodies. Mm -hmm. Female bodies, it can be anybody, you know, you know, people of color, female bodies, um, trans bodies, non-binary bodies, um, um, anybody that's deemed as not being the ideal, white, male, cisgendered, so forth. But that's the conversation we have to come into. And until we, you know, in you know, the movement of, of, of Me Too and Wake Up until we are, and um, Time's Up, until we realize that like we have to link these oppressions with racism and um, ableism and, you know, of course, massaging patriarchy, you know, we won't see a huge shift in our culture. And we are only looking at the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg, really, right now. Well, one of the things that you're, you brought up was the ancestral history, the sort of backdrop of all of this. And I know that in some of the classes that I've taken, um, there was um, a lot of emphasis placed on understanding one's own personal history for white identified people, understanding one's own personal uh, history ancestrally, and uh, where did your folks come from? Where did, what did they have to give up to come here? What did it mean to be Americanized and sort of, uh, you know, brought in? Did your name change? Uh, what native lands are you uh, living on right now? Um, different kinds of ways of kind of looking at the history that one brings to it that is previously uninterrogated and unexamined and in some cases mired in its own conflict if you will in the case of you know the genocide uh, of Jews in the Holocaust for example oftentimes that's something that isn't talked about because it's laden with trauma um, and so for example although you know there's a variety of reasons I know my Italian ancestors came for poverty reasons. They had no way to work there and they came here. And understanding more about what those threads are in terms of connecting back to this fundamental humanity, which is that we're all just trying, you know, trying to survive, trying to connect, trying to, um, but that that can be a portal to connection around these issues. Um, exactly. I mean, that can, that can be a doorway into like trying to understand that like we just, we want to be happy and we want to avoid suffering, you know, but we actually, we get confused as to how to do that. You know, we actually don't know what real happiness is, you know, and some of us have made a home and suffering. Mm -hmm. you know, so when you have all this working together, then you're off on this track where you're just producing violence after violence, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, and particularly, you know, something that, you know, um, I've been really trying to work really hard on is for male identified folks to start taking responsibility, you know, and, and this particular movement right now. And within Buddhist communities, you know, male identified practitioners are doing nothing. They're not doing it? They're not, they're not doing it. Mm -hmm. no. And why do you think that is? And do you think in Buddhist communities that there's sometimes a, a sort of a fallback that's so, I don't want to know, I mean, maybe it's spiritual bypassing, I don't know, where it's sort of like, well, that's too messy. Because I remember I was doing a retreat around Christmas, and I brought up some issues regarding implicit bias, and it was brought up a couple of times by a couple of white identified practitioners and even the teacher that like, well, that's not really the place we're practicing concentration. Yeah. And I was like, wow, okay, like, can't we do both? Yeah, yeah it's just another way white supremacy and dominance is expressed in Buddhist communities is where you get to extract these teachings and then um, dictate, you know, like how they should be practiced and what's appropriate and not appropriate. 
Um, and that actually keeps us from being able to articulate like these things in our communities that remain silent, you know? And also at the same time, the people who are saying, well, this isn't appropriate to talk about, are sometimes the people who are doing the most dirt, who are doing the most things. That's, that's part of their buy-in to this, is that I don't want to be seen for the things that I've done in communities. So I'm gonna create communities and regulate those communities and say, this is not what we're gonna talk about. It keeps the lens off of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know? um, and we haven't, in the Buddhist community, we haven't had this major Me Too movement, our time's up shift. You know, it's so, it's super, super underground and people come to me and they're like, what's happening, what's happening? Who's organizing? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Like, we are. <laughs> like I have I haven't heard any I, I do my part, you know, with I'm doing patriarchy work with different sanghas and, and trying to get other male identified folks to to educate themselves to support other male identified folks in the Sangha, but it's really still not enough. When you're talking to men about their involvement in Me Too and how they can be best, you know, of service, um, and in your case, you're talking to folks in Sangha, in, in Buddhist communities and stuff, oftentimes it sounds like, but I'm sure other folks too. Um, and I've had plenty of conversations with um, self-identified straight men who are of various races and whatnot we're like oh we didn't know or oh whatever i'm like no you're the one that made the pass at me when you're married yeah. you should you do know i'm like you know like you know exactly what we're talking about here and yet you're like in the ether of entitlement that is like just clouding your your sense your good sense you know um and so when you're looking at some of these folks and they're not terrible people right they're not like bad we're not talking about like the egregious cases yeah. that we've heard come out but they're your average person who is cloudy what are the ways that you say to them like here's what you can do like what are the some of the tips yeah you know one of the things i tell people is that like you know look at how you are relating to other people's bodies you know, what makes you think that you have a right to do certain things, you know? And I give people an experiment. Like I tell people, you know, and I do this too, to an extent sometimes, where it's like, before you do anything, say anything, or look at someone, like think about what it would be like to ask their permission, you know? You know, can I talk to you, you know? And then to receive that answer, especially if it's no, you know? Like, how does that resonate? How does that feel? How does that actually disrupt this belief that you have a right to do something that you particular, and in particular, you have a, an ownership, you know? Well, you're speaking about agency and having it be mutual and sort of, you know, the, the language that I've used around that issue that you describe is sort of seeing the other person and, and allowing them to have a full human experience yeah. of their humanity. Yeah. And then you being aware of yourself having a full experience of your own humanity and that you're engaging on that plane, which is the same plane as opposed to grab and go, yeah. right? Um, or, or stay or not or whatever. But um, so that idea of asking the question seems to be the root of what there's a lot of backlash about, mm -hmm. which is that there are men at the, con you know, at the water cooler having conversations saying, I don't, I wish they would stop hiring women. I don't want to have to be around women. I don't want to even, because I'm afraid that I'm going to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing and I'm going to get, you know, written up or sued or something like that. And so they just want to like cut it off at the pass and just, you know, not have to deal with this. Yeah. But, and then there's other women who say, oh, you're ruining romance and you're ruining flirtation and you're ruining whatever. So what do you say to both sides of that? Yeah. Well, I you know, before I get to that too, to, I also want to acknowledge that like, many of us have a really compromised self-agency. So even if we're offered this experience of consent, we sometimes don't know how to relate to it, you know, because we've never had support in that. We've never had support in helping us to understand what my boundaries are, you know, and how to uphold those and to be okay with asserting boundaries. So it's happening on both ends, you know, 
but in, then to get to this question, you know, how consent maybe is disrupting, you know, I think that there's consent, there are really, at least in my experiences, like for me, consent has been really profound. Like it's like when you get off, when you get this permission to, to be in relationship in certain ways, then it's like we're both experiencing power. Whoever I'm with, we're both practicing this agency together. And that can be extremely erotic, you know? Um, but a lot of us are so confused about what we want and what we need. And so consent actually, or the practice of consent actually forces us to get clear about what we want, and, but we don't know what that is often. Mm -hmm. you know, so it just adds kind of confusion to our lives where in fact, how do we do the work to understand what we really want and what we really need, you know, and to start relating to others around us um, as, um, as people who also want and need things. And how do we enter into relationships where we're compromising and supporting one another? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where consent can be really beautiful. It's like, if you do this correctly, then you're getting what you want and need. Mm -hmm. you know, instead of just like entering into this like one-sided relationship where you're just getting things, you know, another person just isn't having a positive experience. Mm -hmm. So this is liberating for us. It liberates us even more, but it forces us to look at all of our stuff and to take responsibility for it. And that's what men are talking about when we are standing around the water cooler. They're like, oh, you know, if we can just not have women, you know, what they're actually saying is like, I don't know how to deal with this conditioning of being a male in the society. I don't know what I want. I don't know what I need, you know, so it's better just to avoid it, you know, and that's exactly, you know, quite honestly, that's exactly how the early Buddha Sangha emerged. That's exactly how the Buddha established the early Sangha. It was like, okay, I'm going to take all these men and ordain them. And we're going to like not have women because women are the problem. <laughs> you know yeah. so that's exactly how the early sangha thought it was like oh we'll be a lot better if women weren't a part of this let's not allow women a seat at the table because yeah. then i won't be tempted as opposed to what's the root of my temptation yeah. and yeah. can i have agency over my own impulses and desires and you know enact uh someone else into the process of engagement yeah. as to possibly being rejected yeah. which might be okay if you had a good self-image yeah, you, exactly. You know, and so I often feel, you know, and I really believe this, that, is that like, I understand undoing patriarchy for myself in a similar way that I understand undoing whiteness for white people. You know, it's like for me, being a cisgendered male, for me, it's been having to come into a grieving and a sadness, looking at the ways in which I've been conditioned to dominate. And also looking at the ways in which I enjoy this privilege of me being male-bodied and cisgender, you know, how I can move through the world in certain ways, you know? Um, and so I've been really paying attention to that, you know, and just, you have to acknowledge it. You have to be like, yeah, I enjoy this. So like, a, right, because, and, and that's what I've heard from a lot of folks who are white identified, who are just like, you know, sort of begrudgingly acknowledging that like, but I enjoy my privilege. I don't really want to give it up, even though I know it's the right thing to do. And, and, and the right thing to do, meaning that it's more, um, it's more connected in the alleviation of all, that it feels better at the end of the day, but it's a little uncomfortable getting there. But you won't, but you won't give it, you can't give it up. Like you have centuries and centuries and centuries of privilege that's been built up. And so you can give up something, but you're still gonna benefit. You know, the same thing with male privilege and patriarchy. It's like, I can disrupt this all I want, but it's still there. So this work is lifetimes of work. Mm -hmm. This is generations of work that we're having to do. Yeah, so speaking of that, that word generations, I was gonna ask you again about um, generational stuff. Like, do yeah. you sense a, a shift between you know, people that you talk to who are 60 and 70 versus people who you talk to who are 30 and 40 versus people in their teens or 20s or whatever. And if so, what is that about 
just these issues in general and, and what do we have to learn from one another? Yeah, and I think that like with our generation, it's very much, you know, um, kind of like being super hip to this shift. Like we're, we're stepping into the shift. You know, I think we've had to learn a lot to do the stepping into the shift. Um, for older, for the older generations, I think it's just like it's something that's really confusing. You know, it's like it's it's really hard to talk about gender with older folks. You know, like so you're the boy or girl, you know, and you're like, okay, no, it's a lot happening, you know. But with younger generations, this is a second language for them. You know, when I talk to younger people, it's just like, especially younger people who are really doing this work. It's just like they're doing, they're thinking about things in ways that like I'm having to learn how to do, you know? Um, so I feel really great about that. The younger generations coming up, you know, this is the information generation, you know? So like they've had this information at their disposal, you know, because of the internet, because of technology. Um, and so I, I feel good about those kinds of shifts, you know, happening, but what we're actually, what I'm actually more concerned with is the shift around um, personal relationships. How do we develop relationships and how technology disrupts that? You know, and also this idea around consumption and happiness. You know, that's why I'm hoping a shift can come, you know, in some generation. Mm -hmm. I think older generations do it a little better. This idea of like, okay, how do you live with less? You know? I think younger generations are like, it's easy for us to accumulate things because I think that we're trying to avoid um, connecting to how unstable the world is. You know, that we're born into the situation and we don't know what's gonna happen day to day, particularly with this administration, with this government, with climate change and everything, we just don't know. So there's a lot of anxiety and tension that we're using consumption consumption to avoid dealing with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that um, hungry ghost phenomenon of uh, you know just always needing to feed the feed the beast, so to speak, but having the whole be so small, it's not actually uh, satisfying anything, and um, it's just sort of this uh, gallop into. Uh, what we would call sense pleasures, um, that if you string enough of them together, you can try to hold something together for a while, but at some point the bottom drops out. Um, and, uh, and then you have to have your day of reckoning. reckoning. Yeah, yeah, you just string one distraction together after the other. You know, yeah. that's the use, that's why we have smartphones, because they're always there to distract us. So instead of consuming stuff um, and instead of staying on our smartphone all the time, one of the remedies might be uh, connection with other people in real time, right? In real life. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Sangha, community, Kaya Namita, good spiritual friends, just people who you trust and know, love you and have your back. Yeah, I, you know, I, I tell people to go where they're loved. You know, and you go where you're loved, you're more likely to trust the places, the environment, the group, and you're much more likely to practice this kind of vulnerability, you know, and that's really important. And in terms of like personal relationships, you know, we can't practice vulnerability with everyone, but it's so important that we have a couple of people that we can be completely open with, you know, that we can begin, we can do the work of relating to another person in front of us not a screen, not like an interface, but just a person in front of us. And then we can hold the space for what that triggers for us. You know, you know the, what, what it means to sit in front of a, another human being and to see parts of ourselves reflected in ways that we can't see reflected in our technologies. You know, we're losing that ability. You know, so it's so important that we, we spend time with people, we spend time in community, and to spend time in community without technology, you know, to spend time with just people sitting together and experiencing one another, you know. But you have to do it in, in, a, in an environment where you feel loved and seen, you know. And, it's, you know, for me, it's like I don't have a lot of communities that I feel a part of, but the ones that I do, I really cherish and take seriously. 
And I think that, you know, they've said, you know, if you have five really good friends, then that beats having 50, you know, sort of acquaintances or whatever. Um, and, and along those lines, do you have any recommendations? Because some of this is Buddhist practice and insight and looking inward. Some of it is just sort of basic um, safety, like self, like they would call it secure attachment, you know, or, or basic safety in your nervous system, regulating your nervous system, being comfortable in your body. Um, but some of it's also just um, knowing how to communicate, like um, Marshall Rosenberg's uh, nonviolent communication stuff today, like, when you this, I feel this, I need this, could you do this? Like those basic strategies. So I just don't think that we're um, teaching folks how to do a lot of the very basic skills that we need to feed us the nourishment that we're not going to get in the consumer world that we could get from um, co-regulating with other people. Because frankly, I'm not convinced we can do it alone under the Bodhi tree, <laughs> all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't, we don't know how to communicate with one another. You know, we actually, because communication really, transformative communication comes out of place of vulnerability. So we have to have a sense of what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, what we need and what we want, and we have to know how to communicate that. You know, we're not doing that. We're kind of hiding out from ourselves. And when we do that, we're just talking past one another, you know? And, you know, a lot of us, we don't feel safe in communicating what we need or want or what we care about because we've had experiences where those things have been used to hurt us. Well, that goes back to what you said earlier um, when you uh, inserted this really necessary piece about agency and boundaries where you were basically saying a lot of people who would be, for lack of a better word, encroached upon um, in a, uh, you know, assertive, aggressive uh, way uh, where they weren't asked, um, if they were asked even, that they might cave, for lack of a better word, perhaps, um, because they haven't had the experience of developing stronger boundaries that kind of can uh, be the container that can help support, um, you know, the integrity of what it is that, you know, a full experience of being an agent in one's own life, you know, might, might look like. So along those lines with vulnerability, you only want to pick a few people, like you say, that you're going to be good with. You want to be able to communicate clearly, but you also want to maintain those healthy boundaries, which is sort of the wisdom, discernment aspect of wisdom, rather. Um, so when you're talking to people, how do you in real time sort of suggest to them, like, here's how you do it. Um, here's some suggestions for you. Because I think that there's a lot of people out there that say this is really good on paper and it sounds nice, yeah. but I wouldn't in the most remote part of me know where to begin. Yeah. I mean, the first step is knowing what you want and what you need. You know, like just having a sense of that. Like you're, you're, you may be in a situation, you may be in an interaction how do you just check in on the spot with yourself and say, you know, is this something that is okay for me? Is this something that I feel comfortable doing? What, what am I sensing hesitation? Like, where, what am I intuiting into the situation that I need to pay attention to? Um, I mean, that's, that's really where we start. We ask ourselves, like, you know, what do I need? What do I want? You know, and for me, I do exercises with people, with groups where I have people reflect on, okay, what do you want? And from that list of what you want, what is it that you absolutely need? You know? Um, and then you, you start building a kind of agency with that. Like, you know, if you don't need to be around certain people, then you should start creating ways of not being around them. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, but on the spot, in the moment, always checking in and saying, Am I okay now? What do I need to do? What do I want? And what do I need right now? And then making those choices to offer yourself what you need. 
And I think the last question I'll ask about this is, um, you said sensing and intuiting, and yeah. a lot of that is the more somatic aspects. We would call it a body scan, or we would call it a, a, a getting a sense of not just what's up here, but mm -hmm. what's from here down, which is a mm -hmm. lot of what meditation can do. It's one of the techniques is to be mindful of the body. And I know we did a uh, meditation together once um, that you had led uh, about that. And I guess I just wanted to um, maybe give people a little window. Maybe you could just do a quick um, suggestion as to how they can start to trust that intuitive yeah. sense about yeah. them. Yeah. yeah, you know, a practice that I would suggest is actually bringing attention down to our core, our gut area, you know, because in the stomach area, you know, the vagus nerve like reaches down into the gut and the, and so the gut, because of that nerve is considered like the second brain, you know? Um, and so there's a lot of data being generated in our core and our guts, you know, um, in our stomachs. And so I am always bringing attention to that. If I'm out, you know, walking around, if I'm on the subway, if I'm in like in an interaction, like I, you know, just check in and say, okay, how, how am I, you know, feeling in my gut? Like, is it, is it weird? Is it good? Am I relaxed? Is it tight? And that actually helps me to determine, you know, what this interaction um, is all about. You know, if it's something I need to move away from, I know that because I feel tight. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's something that's really helping me or if something is really healthy, I just feel really relaxed and open. I feel that all in my gut. And you can feel that in different parts of your body, but this is, the, the gut is often where we feel it the strongest. But for people who are traumatized, don't they sometimes have like a sensation of a 12 when it's really like a situation in the present moment that's a two and then exactly. they get confused about what to, yeah. what's real? Yeah, yeah. And so that comes, you know, to work with that, we're actually having to practice a kind of spaciousness around um, that, those sensations coming up. You know, that, that, that's body sensation, that's also mental experiences you know so you get you allow that to be there and you relax and then you begin to understand how your internal kind of like meter works you know because it's it's off you know it's in a different maybe position you know and so you understand that position and then you're able to relax around that and to to discern you know how to work with situations that are triggering and I think that is the work of meditation really is to get back more into that homeostasis place yeah. where, you know, somatically our nervous system is more balanced and then we're more in that equanimous, you know, state mentally and emotionally so we can respond with clarity and not just go off the rails or double down on erroneous beliefs that can cause further harm to ourselves or others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lama Rod, anything else you want to say before we wrap? Um, yeah, I, you know, last thing I'll say is that like, you know, it's so important to understand what our work is, you know, and that we all have different work to do. We also have different, um, front lines to be on. So we have to figure out what that is and just go to it and do it. So basically don't feel bad if what you're doing isn't what someone else is doing, exactly. but don't feel like that gives you license to just sit back on your laurels and do nothing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, I feel you. Lama Rod Owens, thank you so much. The website is lamarod.com. You're all over the place doing all kinds of teachings, and I know you're um, in New York and uh, along the East Coast, but also all around the country and probably the world as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Europe um, this spring for six weeks in Europe, teaching, you know, teaching the book, teaching my own work as well. So all of that will be up on my website, hopefully in the next week. Lama Rado, and it's really an honor and a pleasure. The book is Radical Dharma. He's amazing. And I'm so glad you had a chance to um, spend some time with us today for Wise Girl, where we invite the wise girl and the wise guy within you, the listener and the viewer to uh, be discovered. So thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Bye.